Uh, today we are going to be addressing Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism has become a much bigger topic in our national conversation, specifically with a survey that came out uh, from Neighborly Faith about Christian nationalism and, and some new statistics that we could look at. The Public Religion Research Institute previously put some things out early in 2023, but the Neighborly Faiths study really revisits this, and it was just released in December. I think we also need to be looking forward to Rob Reiner's documentary on Christian nationalism and the sort of fervor that has arisen around his statements regarding Christian nationalism being both a danger to the country and a danger to Christianity. And so today, Richard and I are going to discuss Christian nationalism. We're going to look at the neighborly faith study a bit. And this is really kicking off a, a short series that's going to evaluate some of the statements that Christian nationalist adherents, based on these surveys, strongly agree with and or disagree with. And we're going to be looking at those in theological and biblical perspective and trying to understand where we as Christians should really land if we're being guided by the scriptures. James, I, I want to start this discussion with the op-ed you wrote, uh, Christian Nationalism, a Theological Problem for the People of God. Boy, that's, that's saying a lot right there. <laughs> uh, lots of good insight uh, on neighborly faith study. Uh, the most important is that Christian nationalism doesn't pose an alarmist threat the John Birch Society is going to be making a big comeback, or Joe McCarthy isn't on a witch hunt again. Uh, he's dead, number one, so it's, it's tough for him to be on a witch hunt, <laughs> right? <laughs> However, you 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 bring up a, a huge point that while Christian nationalism is not a threat to the USA, it is a threat to the church. Is mm -hmm. this is it an image problem? Or is it more than an image problem? Based on the survey results, it seems to be more than an image problem. Yeah. So what I would say is there's there's the image problem. So there's a couple of people, uh, Rob Reiner, who I mentioned kind of is it in, in the intro. He's doing a, a documentary, I believe it's called God and Country, where he is evaluating Christian nationalism. And I think there probably is a danger in the political realm to Christian nationalism. And maybe the better way to phrase it, it's not so much a danger as it is a thorn in the side of politics. I don't envision anytime soon the United States kowtowing to Christian nationalists and declaring United States a Christian nation. And so it's almost more of a bother that is going to distract our lawmakers, if that's even possible, you know, to distract them more than they already are uh, from actually dealing with the problems that they're supposed to be dealing with as lawmakers. And so we've got this, uh, again, the statement from Rob Reiner, we, or this documentary from Rob Reiner. There's also been a statement by uh, James Carville, who is a political analyst, who said that Christian nationalism is more dangerous than Al-Qaeda. You know, again, to some degree, I, I understand what he's gesturing toward. I don't agree with the statement. It's extreme, uh, right? So it, that's uh, <laughs> it's, and I think it's unnecessarily extreme, right? I, I think the better way to phrase it is to say that Christian nationalism is going to gum up the works of government, and it certainly doesn't do the political system any favors, right? Right. right. But I don't think there's any danger in this sort of 
Christian morality, generalized moralizing about Christianity actually taking over the United States and influencing policymaking. I just don't see it. So so Christians are really becoming more of a, a stereotype of themselves. On some level, I think what's happening is, and this is where I see it as a danger of the church, the church and the state are actually distinct. It doesn't matter what we think about. Eliminate from your mind your opinions or preferences regarding this issue. The church and the state are two separate things, as defined by the Word of God. Romans 13, 1 through 7, talks about the governing authorities. The governing authorities are clearly separate from the church. The governing authorities are appointed by God. The governing authorities have delegated authority from God, largely in the realm of justice. So they are are trying to sustain a level of justice within civil society and creating a, to the extent that they're capable, a peaceful society. Mm -hmm. The church is doing something different. We aren't operating on the level of dominion. In other words, you know, Romans talks about the governing authorities aren't given the sword for nothing. The church is not given the sword at all. We we have a whole different fight that we're fighting. And I would say that that's defined more in Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the, you know, the spiritual authorities, the powers, the principalities. And so the church and the state are distinct not only in function, but in actual substance. Mm-hmm. The two are separate. The two are distinct. And I think that a lot of what's happened lately has been, you know, because we are a government in the United States of the people, for the people, and by the people, Christians are, and I would say, uh, are are certainly allowed and maybe should participate in government, Mm -hmm. right? But either way, we have a voice in government that many Christians around the world simply don't have. And so what we've got is we've got a church that can participate in the state, and I think in Christian nationalism, at least the forms of Christian nationalism that are pernicious and problematic, those two ideas that we have a church and we have a church that can participate in the government because it's of the people, by the people, and for the people, there has begun to be a fusion or a merger between church and state that collapses the distinction between church and state. And that, I think, is the real theological problem for the people of God. You have said on a number of occasions, and I I love the statement, that the separation of church and state set apart, sacred versus secular. How does Christian nationalism defeat our main goal as Christians to participate in discipleship? This is the interesting thing with Christian nationalism from my perspective. It is diminishing the church by elevating the state. So in other words, by collapsing the two, what's happening is that the state's power and authority is being expanded beyond what God has actually delegated to it. And so we're asking the state to do things that the church should probably be doing. That's the real problem. That's the crux of the issue. And so we get into these issues of one of the statements that's uh, that's put out and strongly agreed with by those classified as Christian nationalist adherents by the neighborly faith study is faith can make people better citizens. Yeah, that may be true. Maybe faith can make people better citizens, but I actually don't think it should make people better citizens. 
Right. Because to suggest that faith makes people better citizens assumes that there is a complete and total alignment between faith and what it means to be a better citizen. And what I would say is that within the United States, even just in a democratic system, right, a constitutional republic, right, where the people have a, a lot of voice with regard to policy and 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 legal structure and all those kind of things, representatives, everything that we have rights to in the United States, even within that context, Christians should be pushing back. We should have a lot of friction with our government. Because the reality that our government often tries to implement is not the reality that assumes God exists. And, and so even just something simple like faith can make people better citizens is really a wholesome idea. It's an idea that has a lot of sentimentality to it. Like we want to say, oh, yes, nostalgically, um, let's think back to Leave it to Beaver um, in those wholesome times where, you know, um, pornography on the Internet wasn't rampant or you know, um, critical race theory wasn't running everything or, you know, the liberals weren't in charge of society. But the reality is that wasn't Christian either. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so, you know, we we can look at it and say faith makes us better citizens. I agree with it to a point, but to strongly agree with it or completely agree with it, I absolutely think is the wrong move. We need to qualify these statements and understand them from a biblical and theological perspective. And if we're unwilling to do that, what I would argue is we're elevating the state and what it means to be a citizen over what it means to be a Christian. With a statement such as, boy, it's, it sounds so good, faith can make people better citizens. But then you really look at it and you say, how how deep can that go? That doesn't go very deep, does it? <laughs> No, I mean, if you just think about the basics, the blocking and tackling of Christianity, our Savior was crucified by a religious institution that refused to recognize that he was Messiah, Son of God, and by a political institution that was unwilling to put up with or deal with the unrest of that religious society. And, and so what we see in something like, let's say, John 11, right? This happens after Jesus raises Lazarus, right? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And some of the people who witness this go to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the chief priests of the law come together. Caiaphas is actually the high priest at that point. And he says, listen, I don't know what you guys are thinking, but, um, you know, this gets out. This is going to cause a problem with Rome. Like Rome is not going to like this. They're going to see this as a real problem and they're going to bring the hammer down on us. And so what does Caiaphas say? He says, have you not learned, you know, sacrificing the life of one person is better than sacrificing an entire nation? Yeah. And then the gospel of John goes on and says, he does not say this of his own accord. In other words, this is a prompting from God to yeah. drive Jesus toward the resurrection. Mm. But the reality is that we serve a Savior who was the Lamb of God. He was the innocent Savior who did not do anything wrong, and yet he was crucified. And so as we think about what it means to have faith, we cannot assume that it's going to make us better citizens if what we mean by that is that we are going to have a harmonious relationship with the state. Mm -hmm. On some level, theologically, it may be correct that having faith would make us better citizens. In human reality, we're almost always going to come against the rub of, listen, the political authorities don't like anything that we're saying. 
And so we're not better citizens. We're now criminals. We're mm. now hate mongers. We're now horrible human beings. We're whatever. Yeah. That is, you know, the societal determinant of that is that, you know, just the basic understanding of who we are as Christians. If they hated Christ in the world, the world will also hate us because Christ has taken us out of the world. So when you when you see that and, you know, I'm thinking I go back to January 6th. Uh, you know, the the insurrection yeah. and all of those things. And uh, I think that's probably where your mind was going when we we're talking about that. And, you know, I know I've worked with, I've, I've been part of some of these organizations that have been part of, whether it's an insurrection or whether it's a off the rails from where they were, from a mm-hmm. real intellectual standpoint, we're talking people who are are academics, and we're talking about people who are I looked up to. How could that happen in such a short period of time? I'm talking ten years, the last ten years. I, I think there's at least a couple factors in it. Number one, we very seldom reckon with the idea that God uses nations in a particular way in the Old Testament. So if I look at something like Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah was a prophet. He's prophesying against Israel. He's prophesying against Judah. And he's telling them that Babylon is going to come in and basically take the nation into exile because they have not repented and turned back to the Lord. Babylon's success is necessary to God's plan. And when I say that, I I say it very intentionally because there are a lot of people who believe that America's success is necessary, crucial to God's plan. But in Jeremiah 25, what we see is that as essential as Babylon's success is to God's plan, God also said that he's going to punish Babylon for the actions they take on the way to being successful. Right. And so when we talk about it in terms of, let's say, America, is America's success critical to what God is doing? which is another one of those statements that's on the uh, Neighborly Faiths report. It, the statement is actually, the success in the United States is a critical part of God's plan. And adherents to Christian nationalisms agree with that, strongly agree with that. If what they were saying was, yes, the United States has to succeed in order to fulfill some critical part of God's plan, but their ongoing success is never secured, and in fact, based on biblical data, what we can see is that their success is highly likely to involve a fall. I can agree with that sort of a statement. Right. Unfortunately, what I think this statement is saying, the success of the United States is a critical part of God's plan, is that the United States has somehow found itself in a covenant relationship with the triune God. And that relationship will result in blessing as long as the United States doesn't go too far afoul of some sort of moral standard. And I can't agree with that statement. That statement, I think, is theologically incorrect. For one, you know, you have no biblical evidence to suggest that the United States has any sort of covenant relationship with God. And so to claim that is that America has some sort of covenant relationship with God is, is really sort of reverse of what usually happens in biblical covenant. God initiates the covenant. He calls the, the nation. He calls Israel. He calls the church. You don't really see America in that. America counts amongst the nations. And and so we should be 
understanding ourselves as a nation like the other nations in the scriptures. Now, in saying all that, I am not suggesting that Christians have no responsibility or or no impetus to call the United States to account. Right. In in Romans 13, again, um, what we see is that the nations or the governing authorities rest under God's authority. Mm -hmm. They have a delegated authority from God. And so the church serves in part a function of reminding these nations, all of these other nations, that they sit underneath God's authority, even if those nations refuse to recognize that they actually sit under God's authority. Our job is not necessarily to force those nations to recognize God's authority. Right. That is not what we do. Right. We're, we we live in a certain way. We proclaim the gospel in word and deed. Mm-hmm. I say that a lot. And what I really mean by it is this. We live differently. We live according to God's law, the law of Christ. We live in terms of faith. And the way we live demonstrates to those governing bodies, to those principalities and powers that oversee all of the realm of the earth. It demonstrates to them the manifold wisdom of God. And so when we live non-anxiously, when we don't worry about where our food comes from, where our, where our clothes are going to come from, where our, where our money is going to come from, when we just walk obediently with God, regardless of those things, we demonstrate to the world that there is a different way to live and ultimately a better way to live. And so it, it isn't a question of should we be speaking prophetically and theologically to our government? I would absolutely affirm that. The trouble I see with Christian nationalism is that we're starting to lose the ability to speak critically and theologically to our government, or we're aiming for a point at which we would ha- we would no longer need to speak critically and theologically to our government because the government is actually theological. The government is actually Christian. And so what would we say to them? The church is to be an alternative. And if if our nation turns into that alternative, there is no more alternative. Point two, (laughs) public schools should allow teachers to lead and encourage prayer. Yeah, so this is one of those in the the neighborly faith study. This was one, I think it was the number, the second highest strongly agreed with statement that public schools should allow teachers and coaches to lead or encourage students in Christian prayer. Number one, I, I have some questions about the statement right, which should should give you a sense of how I would actually answer this, <laughs> right? I think that within the American system, what we often assume is that the, the public schools should be free of religion. I don't actually think that's possible, I okay? Um, what I would say is um, even if they are free of religion, they'll never be free of ideology. There's always going to be some way of thinking that is embedded within the educational system. And so that way of thinking could be Christian, it could be Muslim, it could be atheist, it could be whatever it is, but it's always going to be something. There's always going to be something there. Mm -hmm. I I think the ideal in public education, if you were really to ask people, is going to be, uh, they'd probably frame it in terms of neutrality. I don't. I don't believe that education is neutral. What I believe is that the public education system is designed to help form the next generation to become good citizens of the United States. 
That's a big part of what education does. It is a discipleship program that forms students less in the image of Christ and more in the image of some ideal notion of what it means to be American. As such, when we start to talk about teachers and public educators leading students, even in Christian prayer, I tend to think it sends the wrong message. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I'll qualify that and say, do I think that Christian teachers and coaches could lead Christian students, press them, encourage them as other believers to pray and witness to their faith in a public school setting? I absolutely do. I think that's an important part of what Christians do, regardless of what the rules are. Coach meets a Christian student or vice versa. I think there's a mutual encouragement, a bond we share that transcends the legal structure that we're set within. I do not think it is particularly wise for Christian coaches and teachers to encourage non-Christian students to participate in Christian prayer. The context in which that would happen, if you agree with my, and, and this is definitely like it's a connected argument, so there would be a lot of people who would disagree with this, but right. just in the simplest form, if we believe that education is a discipleship program to help make students into good American citizens, and we add Christian prayer into that mix, I am concerned that Christian prayer becomes viewed as something that makes us better citizens. Right. <laughs> as opposed to making us truly Christian. Yeah. And so I think the context is problematic. That does not deny, I, I don't think, uh, Christian teachers and coaches living out their faith in front of students. I, I think the uh, Kennedy versus Bremerton school district ruling where the coach was praying on the 50-yard line, I think that was the right decision. Mm -hmm. As a personal profession of faith, that should not be precluded despite right. the fact that he is a coach at a public school. And, and so, you know, the fact that other students join in, great. If that's spontaneous, that's awesome. If yeah. it's forced, it's problematic. You know, students are forced to go through a curriculum at a public school. They're forced to take certain requirements at a public school. If Christian prayer begins to feel like one of those requirements, we're definitely making a misstep, right? Because if it becomes equated with, oh, crap, I have to take geometry this year. <laughs> that's not what we're looking for, <laughs> right? It's not what we want. And so we want students to see true expressions of faith and to be drawn to that because they recognize the hope that is within us. Hi, everybody. This is Richard Beatty in the studio. Uh, that was Dr. James Spencer, and it was a conversation that I had with him about a month ago when a survey came out on uh, Christian nationalism. James is uh, on assignment this week, and so I wanted to air this show. We had not aired it before, and uh, I hope that you enjoyed it. I also uh, would like you to please be in contact with uh, Dr. James Spencer. Uh, go to usefultogod.org. That's usefultogod.org. And uh, leave a message. And also, uh, there's a lot of great courses that they have on that website and a lot of things to talk about, especially Lenten season. Dr. James Spencer has a new book out, Serpents and Snakes. You can find that book on usefulgod.com. Usefulgod.com. Or just drop a line to say uh, who you are and, uh, and how you like the program. As I said, there's a lot of resources on usefulgod.com. Dr. James Spencer will be back with me next week, and 
that you will join us on Useful to God. My name is Richard Beattie in Denver. Have a great week.